This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. A Saudi bombshell from New York that reshuffles the cards. How? We do not yet know, but we will discuss this at length. And also we have television royalty on Unholy Today. I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. Unholy, two Jews on the news, a massive news week, but also just a really big week Jewishly, because this is that period when we're speaking, we're in that gap between Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, which is looming, uh, the big 25-hour fast day. Um, Ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox listeners will say, yeah, well, yeah, we fast quite a few days in the year. It's only you lot who only do it once <laughs> a year. Um, but no, we're in that period. I'm, you know, getting a lot of synagogue time in. My attendance is not perfect year round, but this time of year, I sort of clock up the air miles a bit. And, uh, you know, it's very funny what gets you through the long hours of being in the synagogue if you are not an absolute sort of conviction believer, uh, which maybe I'm not. Um, and this year, I just was reminded again of the brilliance, really, of the Jonathan Sachs Machsor, the prayer book. You know, I don't know whether everyone knows this, but there are special prayer books for each of the festivals. We're big on books, Jews. And so there is a special prayer book for each one. And he, a few years ago, the late Jonathan Sachs, who was chief rabbi in Britain, and who's built this very big sort of posthumous online following, um, he uh, uh, wrote these rather brilliant commentaries. And so they are there... Uh, at the foot of the page, as you're turning the pages and, you know, people are singing and various refrains come round and round again, you can read his rather brilliant commentaries. And it just struck me that all this stuff he left behind, many, many books, lectures, YouTube uh, talks, which are getting huge audiences now after his death, I think the monument, the legacy, the thing that will last from him are those Koren Machsor, Sax Machsor prayer books and his commentaries in them. They are just brilliant, brilliantly written, insightful, hugely learned, and they sort of help the reluctant synagogue goer get through what can be feel like a marathon session. So he's in my mind a bit as we are in this little gap between the two big festivals of the Jewish calendar. Yes, I, uh, and I agree. There are a lot of YouTube videos and a podcast, as you said. So legacy is important. I think it will be relevant for the rest of our discussion to that uh, word. But, you know, these are days of uh, days to reflect. And uh, what I can reflect upon is that we don't have any time to reflect, really. Because, you know, when we, had, when we started this podcast, Yom Kippur was this slow episode in which we recommended books. And I would guess your favorite uh, English author and your favorite American author. I was correct, I think, on some of those. But now we don't have time for that anymore. The news cycle is such that we just have to go on to discuss everything that's that's really happening and, and not have enough time to reflect. I do want to just pick up on something you said last episode, which I kept thinking about. You said that Jews are pessimists that want to be optimists, which which is a beautiful, I think, uh, a notion. And I, I kind of thought to myself, because we do talk about Israel and diaspora, and I, I think the conclusion I arrived at is that Israelis are just— I don't want to say crazy optimists, but we kind of need to be to live where we do. And I think that might be a little bit of the difference between us. But that's enough reflection for the days before Yom Kippur, because we have to go on 
to talk about news, I think. We, we do. I mean, the days of awe, these mm-hmm. are known as, and these these have been sort of awesome days in news terms. Um, no pause uh, for the sort of, you know, religious calendar. Uh, big news. We, we kind of knew it would be because the United Nations General Assembly gathering in New York, normally a time for the big world leaders to be there, really quite striking this time, of the big five so permanent Security Council members uh, only, Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. was in attendance. But he was doing some serious business there and, you know, in the margins and in the sidelines, and so were others. Uh, But, you know, why don't you bring us back up to date with the big bombshell that dropped? Whatever we knew about the discussions or negotiations or normalization between Israel and Saudi, yesterday it became a big deal because the president of the United States sat in a room with the prime minister of Israel. Finally, they met. And he said, and I quote, if you and I 10 years ago were talking about normalizations with Saudi Arabia, I think we look at each other like who's been drinking what? This is Joe Biden to Prime Minister Netanyahu. And a few hours later, the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, saying to Fox News, every day we grow closer to normalizing ties with Israel. So this is becoming a reality. And I think we should talk about what we know. We should say there are a lot of moving parts, a lot of questions that are unanswered. And really, it's like a deck of cards that someone threw. And and we don't know exactly where all of the pieces fit. But I think we should talk about what we do know so far, uh, what the Saudis want and what it looks like you know, pieces of it they will receive. So first of all, and this is very important for Israel, uh, a nuclear facility under American control in Saudi territory. So already the Wall Street Journal is reporting this, right, that there will be a U.S.-run enrichment, uh, uranium enrichment facility uh, on Saudi territory. The Wall Street Journal is also saying that Netanyahu himself instructed Israeli nuclear experts to work on this. Many in Israel's defense echelon are not particularly happy to say uh, the least this is an understatement statement because it can trigger another race in the Middle East, right? It does spread the nuclear arms race and why can't Egypt have it and why can't the UAE have it and why can't Turkey have it, etc. So that's one uh, question to be answered. And of course, what happens if Islamists, uh, Islamist groups take over Saudi Arabia and this is uh, what happens. But uh, th- that is part of the deal, an important part of the deal, supplying advanced weaponry to Saudi Arabia. Another important part of it, obviously, the F-35 uh, stealth combat planes are part of that def- and a defense alliance. Now, all this will require a special vote in the Senate and Joe Biden will need the 67 votes. That could be a very big hurdle, not only not even particularly for the Republicans, might not want to give him this gift looking forward to an election year, but also for Democrats who are not big fans of MBS or of Netanyahu. Yeah, so that's already complicated enough if you just had all of that Mm -hmm. on your plate. You were trying to solve that puzzle. What made it particularly intriguing, and we talked about it a lot here, um, was this other dimension that in order to get a normalization deal, we're between, you know, the United States and Saudi Arabia, but with Israel and Saudi Arabia in particular, there would have to be inevitably for Saudi Arabia to publicly shake hands privately, they've been doing it for ages, but for them publicly to shake hands with Israel, they would have to have some kind of concessions from Israel on the Palestinian question. Because as we've said before, Saudi Arabia has a really particular place in this conflict as the custodian of the holy sites in Islam, if it blesses the existence of Israel, it's got to have something to show for it in the eyes of the Muslim world that looks to Mecca and Medina and so on. 
And therefore, the assumption was, and this is where the puzzle adds, you know, three more dimensions, mm -hmm. was that there would be big concessions to the Palestinians, that uh, that Mohammed uh, bin Salman would demand big concessions to the Palestinians from Israel. Uh, Biden and the Americans would back that request from MBS, and that Netanyahu would suddenly look at those concessions, and those would be too much for his very hawkish ultra-right-wing, extreme-right-wing coalition, particularly Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betel uh, Smotrich. It would be too much for them. They would walk. The coalition would break up, and that would be the end of the whole judicial overhaul threat to democracy story. So it was as if the Biden administration were playing 27-dimensional chess here, mm. uh, you know, kind of Vulcan chess, um, with, you know, all these different pieces of the puzzle, uh, Saudi, nukes, you know, Iran are in the mix because Saudi wants them to match Iran. That was where we were, you know, imagining this was going. But it's maybe even more complicated than that. I think so, because as you say, right, that has been the theory. The Saudi deal would force Netanyahu into concessions to the Palestinians. The coalition would not hold. And that is the end of the Netanyahu government. Now, let's ask this question, right? What if, what if there is a magic formula um, that says that whatever the concessions to the Palestinians will be, they will be? declarative concessions, financial ones, right? A lot of money poured in, infrastructure roads, even a port maybe in Gaza, although the defense special on Israel really objects to that as long as Gaza is in the hands of the Hamas. But is there a formula that will allow Bezalel Smotrich and Ben Gvir to stay in the government, will make Ben Salman happy enough, right? And accepted enough with what he offered the Palestinians and pass the Democrats in Congress. What I mean is, didn't Joe Biden then give Benjamin Netanyahu a huge gift? By the way, yesterday was Netanyahu's, we're talking on Thursday, Wednesday was Netanyahu's best day ever since this government was sworn in. He got a huge gift even without the next steps in this, in this puzzle. But the question is, I guess the key question is, are the concessions made or required from Israel to the Palestinians? We can go into what they can be. Are they indeed going to topple Netanyahu's government or allow this government to survive? I think that's a very big question. And your thinking here is that the concessions may be almost too palatable for Smotrich and Ben Gvir, and therefore they, or, or, or at least they will be palatable, and therefore they don't walk and the government stays together. Well, look, look at what, you know, what we are reporting are the Saudis' demands for the Palestinians, right? I mean, Obviously, uh, um, as we said, economic peace, what we call that, infrastructure, et cetera, some of it Israel can live with. The Palestinians would require a freeze and settlement freeze, right? That's already a more tricky thing to pass in this coalition. Uh, building permits in Area C, also more complicated. But if there is this formula that says, you know, wink, wink, we'll give you financial peace as far as the eye can see. And we will give a declaration about, you know, our hopes for even a two-state solution. Will that be something that Bezalel Smotrich can live with? It's a question. Look, there are a lot of people in Israel who say, forget it. This government is over, but Netanyahu will go to elections and he'll run on the Saudi deal ticket. So he's going to win anyway, right? Um, but, but I think there's a question here because we don't know the details, of the Palestinian concession question, which is a real question about the survival of this government, really. 
Yeah, I think the idea of if they, if it's just money and words mm-hmm. that are demanded of Israel, Smotrich and Mengvir can live with that uh, absolutely, and especially if they are you know smart enough to realise what's being played here. The two thoughts I have on it are one: how important is it to Biden to break up this coalition? Mm-hmm. You know, because if it is, he can just say to MBS, "Ask for a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Don't just be happy with words." Put in full settlement freeze. Put in something on Jerusalem. You know, mm-hmm. mess this up, this coalition. Make something there that cannot be swallowed by the extreme right of the coalition. That's So how important is it to Biden? I think in a way, based on in, you know conversations we've had on this podcast with people well-placed, Tom Friedman and others, I'm not sure it is important enough that they would actually smash up the rest of this thing because, as you know, there's a lot of trophies here for mm-hmm. Biden in his cabinet when he goes to election, you know, break, right. getting this big breakthrough deal with Saudi Arabia. But the other thing I think about is Ben Gavir and Smotrich themselves, they will look at those poll numbers and think, you know, there's a lot of people who want us to walk away from this coalition so that we can then go into elections and lose. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's not give them what they want. I mean, they have a pretty good deal where they are right now, and opposition may not look that appealing, uh, or, and they may not be that confident, they may not fancy their chances facing the electorate and therefore they may allow themselves to be pushed a bit by a deal that in the end as you said nudge nudge wink wink it's only words and a big check probably written by somebody else so why not and uh yeah i think the the logic that a lot of people thought of which is the dexx machina the whole story was going to be a saudi deal which would blow apart the government and the judicial oval, not so sure. Don't hold your breath. And by the way, the narrative, if it goes along the lines you're suggesting, would be yet another Houdini-esque escape by Netanyahu, who, you know, some people were saying had lost his sort of sorcerer ability. Mm -hmm. This would be an amazing thing to have pulled off. And from a Democrat president whose opponent he endorses. I mean, it would show us that the wheel of fortune continues to spin and it always falls on Netanyahu's head, right? You sometimes need to be lucky more than anything else. I do want to zoom out just for a second, right? And to say with all of the questions and dangers here, especially and particularly that enrichment, that uranium enrichment facility on Saudi soil, which is a big deal for Israel. It's a question, you know, about the qualitative military edge, about entering into this sort of nuclear arms race. There are a lot of questions here. But we do also need to say, after detailing the questions or the challenges and the dangers, this is potentially huge for Israel, right? The most important Arab country, a historic significance, peace between Israel and the Arabs, peace between the Jewish state and the Muslim world. I mean, there are a lot of questions here. There are people like a former head of military intelligence, Tamir Hyman, who are saying, you know what? I think the pal- uh, completely contrary to what we said so far, I think the Palestinian uh, component is going to be a substantial one. I think it might lead eventually to a two-state solution. That's why I'm going to take the calculator risk and support this deal. But again, there are others that say that it's in the wording and we don't exactly know what's in there and, and we need to see. And I remind you, even if this coalition breaks apart and Netanyahu goes to elections running on the ticket of bringing a Saudi deal, like... The, again, I'm, I'm running a few steps forward, but what I'm saying is even if this succeeds and, and the Biden administration do succeed in killing the uh, judicial overhaul, they leave Netanyahu in power one way or another. Yeah, because he'll have a big prize to show the voters. He already has so a big you... prize to show the voters even after this meeting yesterday and about M- after MBS's interview. That's a huge deal even before we move forward. 
Right, even if it doesn't come to fruition in a formal deal, the fact of the mutram, you know, the warmth coming from those two sets of remarks. The, the, the two thoughts I have is, one, is there an Israeli right that says, this isn't such a great prize. I don't love there being a uranium enrichment facility in a country that, as you mentioned at the start, could easily be in the hands of, you know, bin Ladenists, Saudi, remember, at some point. Is this a, this is not a great prize. And second, that obviously it's going in tandem with a Biden administration that would quite like to rebuild, put back together mm-hmm. its Iranian nuclear deal. And we heard what uh, MBS said in his interview with Fox, which is, you know, if the Iranians have, have got one, we want one. I'm just wondering if there are hawkish voices in Israel that would not see this as such a big win mm-hmm. for Netanyahu. I, by the way, I think uh, you mentioned that, and I think it's really important what MBS said, right? If, he, if Iran has a nuclear weapon, we want one too, then we're not talking only about non-military uh, nuclear capabilities. That is very important. Correct. And, right. and, and what you're saying, look, there are very few, uh, this is Netanyahu's Likud, there are very few voices of dissent. Uh, uh, his supporters are saying this is amazing, he's bringing this deal, it's historic, etc. There are voices of dissent from the head of the opposition, Yair Lapid, and from what was part of the opposition, Avigdor Lieberman, saying there is no serious in-depth discussion about the ramifications of this kind of deal on the Middle East and on Israel. But if you expect that to be coming from the Netanyahu-supporting coalition, it's not there. Well, we'll know more on all of this when uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu himself gets up at the UN podium in New York, uh, which will happen uh, later on in the day on Friday. So uh, out of our time, watching all of this and somebody who has seen a lot come and go in Israel, spoke to most of the prime ministers of the last several decades and has been reporting close up on recent events, is Yonit, our very special guest on Unholy this week. Leslie Stahl is truly a legend of broadcast television. She was the White House correspondent for CBS Evening News during the Carter, Reagan, and Bush administrations, host of Face the Nation on CBS, and correspondent for 60 Minutes since 1991. She's won 13 news and documentary Emmy Awards, including one for Lifetime Achievement. This week, her report on Israel's judicial overhaul and protests aired right before Netanyahu's visit. Leslie, we are beyond thrilled to have you on the podcast. It's great to see you again. I saw you when I was there a week ago. Or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're really happy uh, to talk to you today. And I, I, I must begin with the with your report. And you've obviously covered many uprisings around the world, Iran, Russia. Your show has covered the Arab Spring. How is this story, the Israeli story, unique in, in your opinion? Well, for me, it was unique because even though I have covered aspects of these kinds of protests, I'd never been in the middle of one. And I was right in the middle. You know, sometimes when we go out to report, what people see on television looks scary. And I've had people say, wow, weren't you nervous? And of course, you aren't when you're in the middle, the eye of the hurricane. Um, I found when I was Saturday night, part of the excitement, that there was a strange calmness within the crowd. Um, there wasn't excitement. There was a lot of energy, but it was, it was purposeful. There was a lot of, we're serious around here today. And I guess I was 
reporting what I thought people were feeling. I'm not sure they were optimistic, though, about how this could possibly be resolved. Um, and that, that was something I felt generally. How on earth does this unthread? And also for me, the echoes, the parallels, what's happening in the United States were vibrant to me. Well, I'd love to hear you say more about that. I mean, what are the parallels you spotted when you were there in Israel, right in the thick of it, as you say? Well, one of the first things uh, our, our military people were talking about, and Levine talked about as well, was um, the word elite. <laughs> the, the judges were uh, elite. The opposition is elite. And so I realized that this sense of inequality that is in the background here of our political mess is, is what's going on in Israel in your own unique way. And that maybe this is happening all over the world. Um, the two prime minister presidents, ex-president facing possible jail time was always in the background. Uh, your politics is very confusing to us Americans. <laughs> it's confusing to us Israelis, don't worry about it. <laughs> Well, you know, we talk about right and left, and your, your, your right and left is different from ours. Mm -hmm. And your system, we often say our system isn't working. Um, the parliamentary system is supposed to be produce stronger, stronger politicians who come up through a system, and they're chosen because of their skills. Uh, and so our system is lacking that. Well, your system... I realize isn't any better <laughs> or complicated than ours. I've got a sense that you, watching your latest dispatch and having seen some of your earlier ones as well, that there was something different about this one that you've covered, um, you know, the second intifada or interviewing Ariel Sharon, for example, that, that when Israel is fighting as it were an external threat. Whereas this one, I saw you, you know, something in your expression as you were speaking to people walking through those crowds, there seemed to be something qualitatively different, even with all the battles and ups and downs you've reported on from Israel for many, many years. This one seems to stand apart. Is that right, do you think? I mean, the whole notion that the biggest threat is from within, as one of our military men said, mm -hmm. this is the existential part of this. We're not together anymore. Mm -hmm. They're divided within. And so, therefore, the idea of unraveling, which is what we feel here, but to have that happen in Israel, with, because as you said, all the other times that I've been there, all the other times in the last 50 years, when you talk about Israel, you talk about the threat from the Palestinians, from the Arabs. Now, to have your threat from your own neighbors. Mm -hmm. This is impossible right. and painful to watch from the outside as well as from the inside. You said you've been reporting about Israel for 50 years. That also means basically meeting every Israeli prime minister since, I want to say, Begin. Am I right? Yep, you're right. All wow. of them. You interviewed Netanyahu himself. I mean, I think there's a, there could be a competition between you and me how many times we interviewed Netanyahu, <laughs> and you'd probably win because you, you met him, you know, decades ago. And what do you make of who he's become, what he's become? 
Yeah, you know, there are some politicians in this country too who change, and you people always say, "What happened?" Uh, at least to the American public, uh, he was so urbane and sophisticated when he ran when he was your UN ambassador. Um, his English was so perfect, and he understood exactly how to talk to the American public, and he was reasonable. He was famous for uh, meeting people and pulling out a napkin and drawing a, a map of the Middle East with Israel so close to all the other capitals. Everybody who knew him had had that little lesson. But his image now is quite different. And, um, I, you know, there's the American public and then there's the American Jews. And here there's a split decision. The last time I interviewed him, Abibi, it was all about how strong the Israeli economy was and how much he had helped create the startup nation and how successful um, he had made your country in that sense. Everybody wanted Israeli technology. They still do. Um, and the other part of the story was how much he was leading the way to opening relations with Arab countries. So it was a generally positive piece. So the thing is that it has changed. I mean, you said about the image, but it's not just the image, is it? It's the actual reality of him. And I'm, just because you're somebody who's seen him up close for so long, what your explanation for that is, because, you know, there he is now risking huge disfavor, you know, opprobrium from the American public and whether just even the sort of small gestures he makes, I mean, just going off to see Elon Musk or whatever, he just, you know, he, it's as if he's almost deliberately kind of trolling the American public or certainly liberal American opinion. Whereas, as you said before, he was very, very good at sort of pressing all the right buttons so that they liked it. So what's your read of what's changed in him? Why is he now a different person from the person you first encountered drawing, scribbling a map on a napkin? Well, I'm going to quote something that uh, one of my military um, the people I interviewed over there who were leading the protest movement, they, I, more than one of them said, this is what happens when someone stays in power too long, especially in a democracy. Maybe it's, it's just a universal thing. Something changes within that person. Um, they begin to think nobody else understands. is clever, Everybody's a yes person. No one ever says, oh, God, you made a mess. And you become imperial. Um, I don't know exactly what happened to Netanyahu. I can't tell you why our politicians change. But I thought that was a, a, a fairly astute observation. I mean, we've had a few U.S. journalists on this show who who speak about Israel and have covered it for a long time in a way just like you. I mean, David Remnick of The New Yorker, Thomas Friedman of The New York Times, who since the 80s, like you, has been going back and forth. And I wonder whether the next generation of American journalists, and I don't, I don't just mean you know journalists with, with Jewish roots, but just generally American journalists, will be engaged or care about this story as much as you and and several of the others who are in the kind of commanding heights of American journalism, whether this is something that will pass. And I just wonder if we were talking to 
somebody, a journalist who's coming up now in their 20s, 30s, 40s, whether they would say, hmm, this is like Slovakia, this is like Australia. It's not one of my big stories that I focus on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move your question off to this. I'm going to take it in a different direction because the question about how, how reporters feel about Israel, not just as a story, Israel was heroic. Israel was performed miracles. Israel, they were the good guys in the Middle East. And that's changed among younger people generally in the United States, where the Palestinians have a lot of sympathy in this country. We should say you were gesturing with your hands to indicate kind of parity, 50-50. Well, maybe now I'm moving the Palestinians over Overtaking, yeah. Well, among young people particularly, and maybe including the next generation of reporters. The other issue is the Middle East in general, because of oil and uh, other issues, um, has been the center of the world for our economy, for uh, terrorism, for all kinds of reasons. And maybe that begins to fade as the most important issue in the world right now. And what we're seeing over in your country, where democracy itself is on the line, changes the image of your country too. So I don't think Israel is going to be as important to reporters as it has been for just a myriad of reasons. And and probably mainly what you said, Jonathan, that younger people, who don't remember World War II or don't remember the aftermath of World War II, don't remember the the early years of Israel's existence, will have a, a far less romantic view of the country. So, boy, we're being downers. Well, we are. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I think I might add to that a little bit and ask about, because you talked about the parallels between the two countries, and I, I'm sure that we, you know, we can agree on just, the, you know, the wave of populism and the polarization and, you know, delegitimization. Is there, when you look at, we are entering an election year in the United States, how concerned are you that that is, that all of that can be amplified in, in your country? Enormously. Enormously. Over here, um, there's fear about our unraveling. There's fear about our democracy. Serious fear. Mm-hmm. Um, this election, uh, I mean, you just take a whole other aspect of this is how technology itself is changing reality. How radical are our politicians becoming over here? People are genuinely worried in this country about our own situation just as much as you are about your situation and the parallels just jump out at you i mean i'm just wondering how free you are to sort of say that in your day job and to call and to call draw attention to that and particularly when you are as you have been you know face to face with the person who most people would associate with the kind of challenge or threat you're describing namely donald trump and just the business of interviewing him. I mean, as just a watcher of these things, it is fascinating because it's so hard. What you actually do, if you allow him to speak, he'll just sort of steamroll ahead with all kinds of 
I can say this, maybe you can't, but falsehoods, he'll say things that are not true. Do you immediately come back? Do you challenge him? There is a bit where, you know, which has got replayed a lot, where you did exactly that. Well, we can hear it, but I well, think it does. It. It, let's play it. We should hear that. Ooh. Maybe it will bring back memories. The biggest scandal was when they spied on my campaign. They spied on my well, campaign, There's Leslie. no real evidence of that. Of course there is. No. It's all over the place. Leslie, Sir, they spied on my campaign and they got I, caught. Can I say something? You know, this is 60 Minutes, and we can't put on things we can't no, verify. you won't put it on because it's bad for Biden. We can't Look, put on things we can't verify. Leslie, they spied on my campaign. Well, we can't verify It's been totally that. verified. No. It's been, just go down and get the papers. They spied on my campaign, they got caught. No. And then they went much further than that, and they got caught. And you will see that, Leslie, and you know that, but you just don't want to no. put it on the air. As a matter of fact, I don't know that. Okay. I think we have enough of an interview here, Hope. Okay, that's enough. Let's go. He walked out. Wow. That's the last interview we've had with him, 2020. Are you surprised that's the last interview? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, but number one, he's not president anymore. Um, so we haven't asked. But it was a challenge to prepare for any interview with him for the very reason that I expressed there. And that is... You either allow him to say anything, and then afterward you come in and you interrupt the interview, you stop the flow, and you say, well, that isn't true, or we can't verify that, or you have something running on the screen. For us, for me, the challenge was to try as hard as I could to anticipate what he might say, because he repeats himself a lot, and try to get the facts in your head and be able to bring them up in real time. Of course, we tape, but still there's a sense of real time anyway. There's a sense of this is going to go on. We're not going to edit in the middle here. Um, and it's, it's a little terrifying. You're feeling that you're, you know, one of the Walinda brothers out there without a net and you're flying around and, um, He's, he's a very challenging politician to, to question when uh, the public is going to see it all. And I don't know if you know this, but before we went on the air, and he taped that interview and put the whole thing out before we went on the which, air. Which was never done before. Never. No one's ever done it. They all agree, specifically agree not to. Mm. And uh, we knew they were going to. We called the White House. We spoke to Mark Meadows and said, well, can't do this. And there it was. And what they wanted to show was that our editing was unfair. And, of course, it wasn't unfair and it isn't unfair. And so everybody could see that it wasn't. That method you mentioned at the beginning of cutting back to the studio to, in effect, fact check what he said. That got a run out just the other day with Kristen Welker of, M of NBC. People could see she did that. I mean, that brought mixed reviews, let's put it that way. As a professional interviewer yourself, what do you think of that as being a stratagem to deal with this very unique challenge that Donald Trump poses? It is. And we talked a lot about that ahead of time. You know, I did four interviews with him, and it was always a matter of studying extremely hard to get issues. Well, we knew what issues, what areas we wanted to cover, 
but to make sure within those areas that I knew as much as possible ahead of time what he had said, what wasn't true, what was true, um, and to be able to challenge it while it was happening. You think that's better than cutting away? Well, I, I do. Yeah, you do. I do. It is better because you don't want to leave that situation and pause everything. And and you don't want to be, you know, you're, you're then saying, you're not giving him a chance to come back. And that's important too. I mean, he, yeah. in my, in that little clip that you ran, he, he had the opportunity to say what he was thinking about the challenge. Mm-hmm. Well, I, he walked out, but he's going to come back, right? I mean, he needs, he needs 60 minutes, but he will, I assume, no? Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. I guess if I, if you made me guess, I'd say yes, that he accept the invitation, but. But there's a genuine question there because obviously back in the day, every, you know, when I said back in the day, two or three years ago, everybody would have said, of course, he's got to go on 60 Minutes. Now you have political candidates launching on their whole campaigns on Twitter. There are people who just cut out the media altogether. They go straight to social media, YouTube and other things. People in so-called, and I obviously resist the phrase, but legacy media, you know, as Donald Trump shown, it's perfectly possible to cut people who do the jobs we do out altogether and still have an impact. And a daily one, a pounding daily one, that's what really what he showed, that if he, he could just be in our faces every day and saying the same thing every day, pounding, 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 it, it can be very effective. But none of those outlets have even close to the audience that we have. And so I, the politicians will still probably come on 60 Minutes for the reach. Mm-hmm. used to be that our audience was a, probably, I don't know the exact numbers, but twice as big as, as it is now. Mm-hmm. We still have the most numbers. So the reason to come on is fading, which is mm-hmm. to reach people. And there's a certain cachet. Um, so I guess he probably would say yes. They'll all you- say yes. <laughs> you know, we mentioned social media, and you you interviewed the very young Mark Zuckerberg in, I think it was 2007. And he said, you know, that one day Facebook will have profound effects on elections. He obviously meant this in a positive way. Um, how how much do you blame social media for, for where we are? Well, first, I'm smiling because when I first, I interviewed Mark twice, and the first time, he was so green and uh, young and uncomfortable even doing the interview. And he just didn't look like a CEO and he didn't come across as one. And I went back just a couple of years later and there he was full blown in command, mm-hmm. um, fully uh, sophisticated and knowing what he was talking about. I personally worried deeply about social media Behind me and my two little granddaughters, I am constantly fretting over what social media means for their education, for their social life, for their sense of well-being, for just knowing that what they're reading on social media is true, the idea that they have to doubt everything constantly, not believe, question 
not trust anything, anybody. And I blame social media for all of that. Uh, but it is now embedded so much in our lives. It's another thing where you say, well, how do we get out of this? Where does this, where are we going? How do we move forward? Where, what is the path? So much of our lives used to be clear. The sense that tomorrow was going to be the same was, uh, was just part of life. And that is not part of anybody's life anymore. I think technology has always been the, the driving force of history. Mm -hmm. It's moving so fast now. We can't adjust. We can't, we're never going to catch up to get our systems ready for it, able to deal with it, absorb it. Look what's happening to our young people. I don't know about Israel. Are, are your young people in mental crisis the way ours are are partly because of covid because they were isolated but very much because um, of social media mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's i want to say destructive force mm -hmm. i used to joke i used to joke i still joke i don't mean i used to joke i used to say that i wanted to start an organization called grandmothers the, the organization of grandmothers against social media. And then I said, oh, God, that spells orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way I'm going to run that or <laughs> well, That's how you get ratings, Leslie. That's how you get ratings. Just <laughs> yeah, saying. Well, that's Just saying. <laughs> um, Can we go on? You're going to, no, you go no, 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 you do. You go. Oh, well, question. I was just going to ask you about a, what is a perennial debate in this country. I mean, I'm, we're sitting here in London, that there are many fewer women than men over the age of, say, 50 on British TV screens. It's a constant sort of back, you know, debate that comes up. And women involved in broadcasting here often say it's, a, it's like Hollywood with its habit of giving fewer and fewer roles to older women. And I often surprise people when I invoke the American TV news and current affairs industry, because people assume, I think, that, well, you know, if any industry would be even worse in this area, partly because of Hollywood, it would be American TV news. And actually, I say, kind of the opposite is true, that it's on American TV that you have or had Barbara Walters, Andrea Mitchell, Diane Sawyer, Judy Woodruff, you know, there are a whole lot of them. And of course, you. So what's your explanation for that? So I think to me, always very surprising sort of counterintuitive pattern. Well, I guess I think two things. There's a very strange season of um, octogenarians, older people at the top of our society, and I'm, I'm part of it, our political people, our anchor people, I can't explain it. I'm part of it and I can't explain it. It's it's partly that my generation won't leave the stage. Hmm. Partly because the rest of society seems to be accepting it for now. There'll be a big turn of the page. But right now, I'm fascinated by it. I don't know why all our candidates are over 70 or 80. I don't know why I'm still here. I'm glad I am. But I do think there's something 
Maybe it's our water, you know, <laughs> maybe it's what we're drinking. I don't know. But there is this I this sense, an image, it's true, it's not just an image, that we're in an age where older people are surviving far beyond what's been normal in the past. What I say about women, and I'm, I'm not that familiar with, with Israel, how your anchor women, how old they are. But I used to say, nobody knows how women are going to be perceived and accepted past certain ages because nobody had ever done it. You know, there weren't any at all to survive long or not long. I used to say, we'll do as well as men. We'll be the same. If they survive past 60, we will. And at least in this country, that's been true because we're the first wave. All the women you mentioned are the very first wave. We came along during what we call affirmative action. You know, the companies were basically forced to hire us, but uh, a lot of us survived and prospered with this, but who knows? I don't know why your country's different from ours. You are very, very good at what you do. That's also a good reason, I think. No, but, um, but there's a category of us. Right, right. There's a group, and Jonathan ticked right. off names, but and even the the generation right behind me, which are probably now in their 60s, they're also thriving where you would have thought, oh, well, a woman. When I first started, someone said to me, well, you'll never last past 40. And even then I thought, well, how do you know that? And then it was 50, you know, it, and it does creep up. But I would just say that the, in, I think in Israel, because the industry is so relatively young, I mean, the main commercial channels only came around in the early 90s and then the 2000s. You don't have that test case yet. I think we'll be like you will be better than the UK. But I, I don't have a good enough answer for that because we haven't been, I think, around. There's no person, no woman correspondent anchor in her 50s, 60s, even more that has been kicked off air. The opposite is true. So I think that we're we're going in a in a good direction, because um, you mentioned we also mentioned sexism. So I kind of want to quote. Yeah, I'm holding your book here, which I love. It still holds up, by the way. And there's this amazing story of you as an a young anchor, anchoring, being one of the anchors in the election night 1974. It's a big deal that they have a woman amongst all the men, and you're walking around the sort of set as you tell it. The president of CBS News is with you, trying to like tell you to, you know, everything will be fine. We assure you. And you see these uh, chairs, and they're marked, right? The, there's Rather for Dan Rather, and there's Cronkite for Walter Cronkite, and there's Wallace for Mike Wallace, and Mudd for Roger Mudd, and your seat says female. <laughs> it doesn't. This is an amazing story. Obviously, so much has changed, but I, I guess two questions here. One, when did you realize that the war has, won, has been won? Has it been won? And, and what is left to be done? Well, first off, I want to say that even then, I laughed. It was so over the top, blatant that there was nothing to do but say, this is, this is so insane, you have to just laugh at it. I do think in our industry that women have arrived. Um, I'm so surprised that we haven't done better across the board in all industries. We've been at this uh, affirmative action in this country passed right when they hired me, 1972. And 
I knew for sure that 30 years max, there'd be the same number of women CEOs. Women would be running banks and women would be running medical departments and running news organizations because we, at this stage, actually, there are more women graduating from college and graduate schools. Um, so that, that it has taken so long has been a huge surprise to me. When I say we're doing well in our industry, women have always been in the press. Women have always gravitated to journalism. There've been war correspondents from the beginning of time, practically. Not many women, and there are many more, and they're doing everything. They're covering wars, they're covering economics, they're doing everything. And, uh, and they're becoming heads of news divisions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so where I sit, from what I do, women are doing very well. It's not true in these other industries at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't explain it. Can I ask you about a story, a domestic US story that you won one of those many awards for, uh, Wilbur Award, for your coverage of the Tree of Life oh. um, massacre, the synagogue yes. there in Pittsburgh, the still the most lethal anti-Semitic attack in, on American soil in the country's history. And you did a very affecting dispatch where you went there and spoke to the families of those uh, who were murdered. And many, many interesting things came out of that. I mean, things I wasn't expecting, including the kind of bond they had with victims, uh, 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 survivors of attacks on other houses of worship, including Christian and Muslim ones. Also, there was this really interesting exchange, for example, about forgiveness, which you know, it was a very Christian ideal and you had your Jewish speakers there really struggling with the idea of forgiveness. One saying very movingly that, look, I can forgive, but the people who are dead are the ones to forgive and they can't because they're not here. And all of that. And I just wondered, because I know, I mean, it's up to you how much you want to tell us about it, but I think one of your parents was Jewish and just whether a story like that is just, you know, and you're uh, such a seasoned reporter, you're going to get lots of assignments. You're famous for never saying no to an assignment. If that's the story, you go and do it. Is that just another story? Or is there some bit of you that sits there with those people in that synagogue and feels, this is my story too? No, I don't do that. I don't do that at all. But I just, while you were talking, and then that was a very important story for any reporter to cover. Um, The people were still raw with emotion when I got there. Um, And I think it was was at least a a good year later. But what's happening in this country is a very heightened fear of anti-Semitism across the country and a greater fear than I think I've ever felt in my lifetime. Uh, one of the young people I spoke to in Israel, and we put him on camera saying, you know, people here would say it can't happen here, what's going on in your country. It just can't, but it is. I would say that about anti-Semitism in the United States. Mm-hmm. I always grew up with the idea that it can't happen here. Mm-hmm. And now people don't say that. Now people say it is happening here. Mm-hmm. Um it is. And so 
away. Anti-Semitism never goes away, does it? Mm-mm. Ever, ever goes away. Mm-hmm. But now it's in alarming numbers. Um, you know, because we we do call ourselves two Jews on the news. Is there a, is there something about you know? I think it was your father who was Jewish. Is there something in that 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 both came my out parents to, were Jewish? Oh, oh, okay. Then we had wrong uh, intel here. We're sorry. Okay, so let's talk about that. <laughs> what wrong intel then? Um, in terms of my profession, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not a female reporter. Yeah. I'm a Jewish reporter. I'm, you know, I'm not. I, I live in New York. I'm not a New York reporter. Yeah. And, um, I I want to keep that perspective. I think about that. I cover stories. I do cover stories with emotion. I'm not saying I don't feel, yeah. but I here at 60 Minutes across CBS News across my entire career, it's always been about fairness. My daughter, for example, she's in her 40s. She wants to know where reporters are coming from. She wants to know, what do you think? Are you left? Are you right? Are you up? You're down. And I was trained and still believe that you have to try as hard as you can to wring out any personal bias. Just wring it out. I'm not saying it's not there. We're humans. Mm-hmm. But, but part of the profession, in my view, has always been to be down the middle as much as you can. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's old fashioned now. I don't know. But it's yeah. not old fashioned at 60 Minutes uh, or at CBS News across the board. Yeah. You, I mean, I, I, this maybe have to be our last question, but I'm just struck by the thing you said a few moments ago that people of your generation don't want to leave the stage yet. And no, that's, no, we don't. And, and, the audi- and the audience still, you know, is still applauding, so it still works. Outside media, though, in politics, Joe Biden, if he wins, he would be 86 at the end of his term. The whole world saw that footage of Mitch McConnell kind of freezing. Oh, yeah. People have seen those images of Diane Feinstein, age 90, having to be assisted into the Senate and reports that she is not completely 100% aware of the different issues coming before her and so on. If it were up to you, do you think... Let's start with the fame, the big one. Should Joe Biden, even though you know we take on board what you said before, even though he can, should he not run for president in order to perhaps pass that torch to the next generation, or just because there is a point at which it's too much? So, first of all, when I said we won't leave the stage, I meant politicians as well as I <laughs> meant to be putting our both Trump and Biden into that mix. Um, that question that you just asked me is the single most popular question at dinner, uh, even when you're email with, with your fr- emailing with your friends here in the United States, when you talk to your own children, that is the question. And it's only about Biden. I don't know why it isn't also about Trump, but it is. Right. It's about Biden because he is showing his age. He shows his age when he walks. And he shows his age when he talks. And uh, people who see him personally, talk to him face to face, say that he's as sharp as ever. Um, But when you see him on television, and this is how we judge in our politicians in 2023, how they look, how they sound. It's a huge issue here. And it really is in his lap. 
if he is going to withdraw, and frankly, I don't think he will, but if he does, he has to do it now because he has to give other Democrats the chance to compete before the public. Yeah. So we'll know very soon, but it is, it, it is something that he has to be grappling with. He, there's something like 69% of the Democrats in polls do not want him to run because of his age. So mm-hmm. it's not as if it's not something in his face every day. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you what I think. I'm just well, telling you I, I work so hard at not doing that. But um, Although if he, did, if he didn't run, a lot of people are saying the front runner would be a woman. And I don't mean Kamala Harris. I mean Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. That. A lot of people mm-hmm. say that. So that would be another argument. You'd be saying not just younger person, but specifically make way for America's first woman president. And then you have the question whether the public's ready for a woman. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I don't know. That's an honest answer. Mm-hmm. There's a possibility not. Well, sadly, sadly, sadly. I do want to ask, and I, I am afraid to ask this, but you did mention before, you know, CBS still is, 60 Minutes still being this bastion of broadcast television, even though ratings are not as good as they used to be everywhere in broadcast television. So I'm afraid to ask this question, but what is the future of broadcast journalism? <sighs> that's, a, that's painful. <laughs> Painful. Um, It's kind of grim. It'll gravitate. It'll gravitate to the web somehow because that's where the eyeballs are going. Yeah. And um, I don't know if these companies online are going to be able to afford what we do. Mm -hmm. Very expensive. We travel. We obviously. I I came to Israel with uh, seven people, two, four, six, seven people, and we stayed there almost a week. Yeah. So that's just one story, out of all the ones we do, all year. Uh, I don't know if if um, the different outlets that will be on the web will be willing to do what we do. So. I think we'll be there. I just don't think it'll be in the same exact form. Wow. We don't want to end. Something. No. <laughs> okay. So give us something right, optimistic to end. <laughs> tell a joke. Oh, two on, women, two women joke, from yeah. broadcast television and one man from print walk into a podcast. You take, <laughs> you take it from there, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this was just such a pleasure to talk to you, Leslie. We, uh, I thought it would be a pleasure, but I didn't, I didn't know just how much. And we're thrilled that you had the time to talk to us. Well, I can't wait for you to come to the United States and do your reporting, and then I'll interview <laughs> you. This could, go, this could go back and forth. <laughs> it could. It could be the first of a, of a long-running series. Um, it's been brilliant having you on Unholy. Thanks so much, Leslie Stahl. Pleasure. Some people are just like a time capsule, you know? They have so much history uh, in them and so many stories they can tell. Um, I went through a book recently. By the way, it came out in 1999. But it has it's just these anecdotes and the way in her, you know, her career and how women were treated in the media and how much has changed. I mean, there's a lot to go through. I could have yeah, I no, to do this conversation. There really is. I mean, we talked, didn't we, about, you know, this thing of, 
uh, careers going on longer now than they used mm-hmm. to in politics, in journalism, people sticking around longer. And listening to her, you realise the tremendous value of those years of experience. I remember once in the Guardian newsroom, actually not that long ago, and I think we wanted to run a piece on the 50th anniversary of some key event in the Vietnam War, and thinking, well, who can write the editorial uh, on this? And looking around, and there was a colleague of mine, the late Martin Woolacott, who had covered the war, mm. um, who had been a reporter in Vietnam. That's pretty great to have. And so he wrote that editorial. You know, that's pretty great to have that. And Leslie Stahl will be, who can just say, yeah, I spoke to Menachem Begin. I spoke to Ariel Sharon during the Second Intifada. That's great. That just brings a whole other dimension. So long may she and the others continue. Mm-hmm. Um, we are delighted to have spoken with her on Unholy. We have some awards to hand out as tradition this time of year. We're mindful of tradition. Mm -hmm. So who have we got in our Hall of Fame this week? Um, You know, I uh, assume that I'm doing the chutzpah because that's just what always happens, even even on this episode. I mean, it's always a crowded field, but this time it will have to be Donald J. Trump. Not the first time we give him this award. Uh, but he, you know, he um, was sending out his Rosh Hashanah greeting. Uh, and maybe he sort of missed the point of what Rosh Hashanah greeting is. But the caption of that greeting was, just a quick reminder for liberal Jews who voted to destroy America and Israel because you believed false narratives. Let's hope you learn from your mistake and be- make better choices. Moving forward, Happy New Year. <laughs> I wonder I mean, what his. I wonder what he would say for Yom Kippur. Like you, liberal secular Israelis, fast for your sins. Like what is the what is the point? I, it's amazing. Yeah. Really. No, it is. It's the birthday card from the local <laughs> kind of mafia enforcer <laughs> who says you got a lot of you got a lot of thinking to do. You know, amazing. Um, and you're right. He is a serial winner on this show. You know, so much winning as he would like to say, you'll become tired of winning. I wonder if he's yet tired of winning our chutzpah award once again, as you say, Donald uh, Trump. Um, I think for our Mensch Award, we have a little bit of audio, which we just have to hear, really. I think both of these two people can be the Mensch winners. But this is Wolf Blitzer concluding his interview with Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine. And as we say, you and I say, yeah. Jewish people say, Shana Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Thank you so much. That's how you say Shana Tova, Donald. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's a perfect little moment. Um, I really like it. I mean, p- partly because I just think it's there's something very sweet about it. It's not that often, actually, you know, you see people sort of... Because Wolf uses Wolf uses the first person. He says that's how we, you and I, we're fellow Jews. That doesn't moments like that don't happen that often. That often it's like there are two people on TV talking who are both Jews, but they don't say it, you know, quite like that. And Zelensky is, you know, has a sort of interesting relationship with being Jewish. He doesn't always come out with it like that, but he was sort of put in that corner. Um, some people were joking that they weren't sure how much more Hebrew than that uh, <laughs> Volodymyr Zelensky necessarily knew. But a sweet little moment for the new year. These two uh, big figures on the world stage, Wolf Blitzer, veteran CNN anchor, and uh, Volod- Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, wishing each other and I suppose all, all everyone in the audience a happy and sweet new year, as we do still in this season uh, to each other, Your needs. It is still that moment. We say that we're hoping to be 
sealed and inscribed in the Book of Life. One of those little Jonathan Sachs commentaries, by the way, mm -hmm. said that one of the great things is, you know, the text says that on Rosh Hashanah, the new year, it is decided who will live and who will die. And then it's sealed on Yom Kippur, but it can be averted by, you know, prayer and penitence and so on. And he says this is what makes the Jews kind of unique, is they believe even the will of God can be overturned, you know, as it were, on appeal. Um, that, you know, Jews can do that. And that is what makes them pessimistic optimists. Because in the end, however bad things are, however bad the decree, the judgment against you, you've got a bit of time to, to overturn it. And that's, I think, where that combination comes in. That was just one of those little uh, reflections in the commentary that I mentioned. Uh, but that's in my mind as we go into um, big day for Jews, solemn day. If you are among our listeners who are fasting, fast well. Be sealed in the book of life and good health. And I pass on those same wishes to you. You'll need to. Yes, but we won't say our goodbyes until we say our thank yous to Gaia Glazil, Omer Primat, Rom Atik. And we shall meet next week, Jonathan. We shall. I'll see you then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.